would you turn to Matthew 11 as we continue our series in the gospel according to Matthew. I don't know if you guys caught this or not, but uh, 16 babies, I mean, be fruitful and multiply. And I guess two rivers gave a hearty yes and amen to that one. Uh, do we ever need a care team? Oh my goodness. Um, man, it is wonderful to be here with you today. This is just awesome to be together. Um, if you're brand new, by the way, every month that has a fifth Sunday, that's when we do those scatter Sundays. And so that's what that is. Uh, every month, so it's about a quarter, every quarter we do that. And next Sunday is one of those Sundays where we don't gather in worship here, we scatter in worship all over. And so we would just love for you to jump in on one of those projects if you're able to do that. Okay, Matthew 11, let me catch you up here briefly. The proclamation of the kingdom of heaven here and now in the present in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, uh, that proclamation has been made clear over and over and over again. The demonstration of Messiah's power and authority over sin, disease, death has been made evident uh, in his beginning ministry. A team of 12 disciples has been brought together to proclaim this message that the kingdom of heaven is here and now in Jesus, the Messiah, and to minister with authority that Jesus has as well. That's happened. And the crowds around Jesus are growing. And so is the opposition. And we saw that really clearly last week in Matthew chapter 10, an emphasis from last week around discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus uh, was this, and I just wanna repeat it. Salvation is free, freedom in Christ. Salvation is free. It is faith alone and Jesus alone by grace alone. Yes and amen, hallelujah. We proclaim it, we celebrate, we receive it. Discipleship in Jesus, following Jesus as a disciple is going to cost you. Uh, it's, there's hardship. There is suffering, the world will hate you. Jesus told the 12 disciples last week at their very first mission together that even blood families would be divided over the name of Jesus. And so he's preparing them for this reality of discipleship, hardship, suffering, the world's lies, a self-righteous religion would be against them. And we asked this question last week, and I just want to keep this question in front of us. In light of everything that we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 10, if you're one of the 12, are you still going on that mission? Knowing that you're going to face what you're going to face. One of the things that Jesus told the disciples they would face is they would be flogged for proclaiming the name of Jesus. That's intense, right? Like, are you still going to go on that mission? Well, Jesus didn't send his disciples into the world on the mission in his name, knowing they would suffer without the promises of his comfort uh, and hope that his presence with them, his uh, peace, his hope would empower them to persevere. And he gave them uh, some promises as they were going, knowing that they're gonna suffer. And I wanna remind you of these as well. The very hairs on your head are all numbered, he told them. Like you are seen, you are known, and it is intimate. So know that, believe that, receive that. 
That, that was chapter 10, verse 30. Chapter 10, verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You are secure beyond this world. You are seen, you are known, you are secure in me. And so one of the things that uh, I know we talked about this in our uh, life group this week that I'm a part of on Thursday morning, a men's group that I'm in, and I know other life groups engage this as well. Uh, we've, we've been asking ourselves this question as a community of faith in light of Matthew 10. Like, are you still in as a disciple? Like, are you, are you, are you following Jesus even, even in hard Ship in our lives because uh, I think it's it's a question that we need to to consider and think about and process together. Um, life's hard circumstances, um, grief, broken relationships, stuff that's happening in the world like hardship, suffering, right, has a way of creating doubt in us. Uh, has a way of uh, giving us pause around the goodness of God and the grace of God and the presence of God in our lives. And I just, I just want to let that breathe today. Most believers that I know, most disciples that I've engaged with along the journey of life at some time or another will struggle with doubt, some kind of doubt or even a season of doubt that's really, really Hard, And I just want to let that breathe. I get it. I've been there and I may be there again in my life. And when trouble and grief comes into our lives and we begin to question God's goodness and his power, um, I wonder if you've ever asked this question. Don't raise your hands, but I wonder if this question is in the room today. Um, why does God let this happen to me? Why has God allowed this to happen to my family? Or even this question, is the gospel still, do, is the gospel true? Do I still even believe in Jesus? Do I really believe he is real? Uh, this posture, this place, this confusion, this season of doubt is where Matthew 11 starts. And it starts in the life of John the Baptist. That is where he is. And he is asking these questions. He is in a literal dark cave in prison with literal dark doubt surrounding him. The same John the Baptist that baptized Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like he was all in and some real trouble and some real hardship came into his life. And now he is questioning, is Jesus even real? Is he the Messiah or is someone else the Messiah? That is where we are as we begin Matthew 11, John the Baptist in a real struggle with doubt. And so if you have ever struggled with doubt, if you are struggling with doubt today, you are in really good company with John the Baptist or as my friend Greg calls him, J the B. See what he did there? All right, let's, got some courtesy laughs on that. Thank you, Ann. <laughs> really appreciate that. All right, Matthew 11, just three verses. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there. Here's where he was. He was instructing his disciples to go and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah and that in Messiah, you have salvation. 
and that the new covenant is here. And he told them that they were gonna face all kinds of trials. And Jesus isn't the kind of Lord that just like sends you out into hardship and stays back and watches. No, he goes with you. He is always with you. And we see this at the very beginning of 11. Jesus just didn't send them out. He was also going out. He finished instructing his 12 disciples. He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples. So John the Baptist had his own disciples. And so he's in prison and he's hearing what's going on. And he sends his disciples from prison, verse three, to ask Jesus. And here's the questions. Here's the doubt. Here's the confusion. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Like same guy that baptized Jesus and proclaim to everyone, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, is now asking the question, are you still the one? Or should we all go look for someone else? From a literal prison with literal doubt in his life. Um, some context from John the Baptist. We see him obviously in the New Testament, but John the Baptist is the last of the old covenant prophets. And the primary role of the old covenant prophets was to proclaim to Israel, God's people Israel, that Messiah was coming. And John the Baptist was the last of those prophets. And he has real, uh, real importance because he was the last one as Jesus, Messiah, entered into the world. And in verse 11, Jesus even said this about John the Baptist in chapter, Matthew eleven eleven: among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John. Like of all of the prophets, John is the greatest born of women. Why? The reason that John the Baptist is so prominent is because he is the one who introduced Jesus as Messiah, literally in the flesh, to the Jewish nation, fulfilling all of the messianic prophecies. That's why he carries such importance around all of the prophets of the old covenant. Now, what I wanna do is I want to um, simplify all of the old covenant prophecies down to two verses this morning for us to understand what Jewish expectation was about Messiah and an understanding, uh, I think, where John the Baptist was so confused and why he was struggling with his own doubt. Uh, one is Isaiah 53.3 and the other is Micah 5.2. So Isaiah 53.3, here's a prophecy of Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with suffering or acquainted with grief. And then also Micah 5.2, but you Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient time. So Isaiah 53, Messiah is seen as a suffering servant savior, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But in Micah 5, 2, he is seen as the ruler over Israel. And we juxtapose those two messianic prophecies. The important context about Jewish expectation of Messiah is that these prophecies would all be fulfilled immediately. 
Like, yes, he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And at the same time, he's going to be a ruler over Israel. And he's going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem on Zion. And what was happening is we're seeing the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We're seeing the persecution. We would see that really clearly as Jesus goes to the cross of Calvary. We're seeing that clearly. What John the Baptist isn't seeing and what he's not experiencing is where is the ruler going? Like, where's the king ruler? Where's the warrior? Are you with me right now? And that was some of the confusion. Like, what is happening? Where is that Messiah? And so he sends Jesus And he asked those questions. Um, What we know today uh, is that there would be a separation of the advents of Christ. Like on this side of the cross and the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, we understand today that there are two advents or two coming, two comings of Jesus, right? The first advent, we just celebrated at Christmas and we celebrate that every single year. And Jesus came as a baby and he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and he was lying in a manger, right? We know that story. That's the first advent. And there will be a second advent. And we know that story in Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ. And I will tell you that he's not gonna be wrapped in swaddling clothing, lying in a manger in the second advent. He's coming on a white horse. He didn't have tattoos on the first advent. He will have tattoos at the second advent because King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be written down his thighs. We are living in between the two advents today. And so was Israel, but their expectation was that Revelation 19 and Isaiah 53 and Micah 5.2 and Revelation, it was all happening at the same time. And so there was confusion about that. You guys with me right now? Okay. Um, And so he's wondering, he's in, because he's like, where is the ruler? Where's the warrior? And his question is, has God forgotten me? And he really does want to know, like, I think I may have been wrong here. I I don't know anymore if Jesus is actually Messiah. And what I love, what is so equipping for us to see in these brief verses I think for our lives, when we are struggling and doubt and confusion, and we just don't know, and we're wondering, is the gospel still true? Is Jesus still real? All these kind of things. What John the Baptist does with his doubt is he took his doubt to Jesus. He didn't go to the world. He didn't go to his feelings. He didn't go to his circumstances. He took his doubt straight to Jesus. And what I love and what I think is really equipping about Jesus's response to John the Baptist is that Jesus's answer to John sends him right back to the word of God. He sends him to the scripture. And that's what we're gonna see in the next piece here. So let's look at Jesus's response. John the Baptist sends the disciples. They ask this question. I'm not so sure if you're the Messiah anymore. Are you the Messiah? Should we look for someone else? And Jesus replies, verse four, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. In verse five, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear and the dead are raised and good news is preached to the poor. Verse six, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Something I learned this week about John the Baptist is that 
uh, when you look at what we have recorded in the scriptures about his prophetic words, he quotes Isaiah more than any other Old Testament prophecy. Like Isaiah was, it was home for John the Baptist. And what you will see, if you compare this, look at verse five, write this down, uh, Matthew eleven five. compare that later to Isaiah 35. And what you will see in Isaiah 35 is the language that Jesus uses in verse five. Basically, here's what Jesus told John the Baptist to do. He's like, bro, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go back to Isaiah and study. And I'm telling you right now that everything that Isaiah foretold is happening. In other words, I am the Messiah and go back and get rooted in my word. And that will dispel your doubts. In your suffering and your confusion and your doubt, stay rooted in my promises, John. It is the anchor for the soul. And my word is a stronghold in the day of trouble. God's revelation of Jesus in his word strengthens our faith and dispels our doubt. And the promise of Jesus in verse six, you are blessed when you don't fall away on account of me. Stand firm, John, stand firm, be courageous, be strong. It is happening, it is happening. Um, when we are struggling with our own doubt, or perhaps when we are in our own season of doubt, um, I believe that we can be empowered to do the exact same thing, to be rooted and grounded in his living and active word, to proclaim the promises of his word over us, to self-arrest on the slippery slope of doubt. This is, a, um, this is an ice axe that um, I have hanging in my office, uh, in my home. Uh, my friend Ben Springer in the back of the room, he's got one just like it. And um, our friend Joe Bolin, we all lived in Alaska together. And Ben and Joe and Doug and Adam and these guys, these are guys that I would say gave me the mountains. It, it, the mountains are really special to me. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Like I commune with God in the mountains. I, we, I just, it's important to me. But when I moved to Alaska, I didn't know about climbing in the mountains. I mean, I was hiking in cotton. And those guys are like, bro, you don't know. No, no, cotton is rotten. Like I'm telling y'all right now, you don't wear cotton in the mountains, right? Also, wear wool socks and bring an extra pair in your backpack every time you hike. Trust me on that. Bring a raincoat every time you go in the mountains. Are y'all with me right now? Don't forget it. It should always be in your pack. Should always be, even if it's like 70, oh, it was 75 and sunny when I left Fort Collins. I don't care. Bring a raincoat, bring a raincoat windbreaker, it, it's very important. Another thing that those guys taught me was how to use one of these. Because I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of snow in Alaska. So most of the year you are climbing in snow. And so we would literally go up on, like, the, like, the, like here in Fort Collins, the main hike is, is uh, Horsetooth Rock, right? Well, in, in Anchorage, Alaska, it's called Flat Top. And we would go and, you know, this, it's, different places are steep and we would, they would train me how to use one of these things. And so you hike with it like this, just like a walking stick or whatever. And then if you ever take a step and you think it's soft snow and you're digging your boot in and it's actually hard pack and your foot gives way and you begin to slide, 
you are taught, like I'm, I'm sliding down, I gotta get over on my stomach, I turn the, the flat blade of it into my sternum and I lay on my chest and the point of the ice axe, will, it will self-arrest. It will stop my fall. And we would train to it and they taught me how to use it. And I had to go buy an ice axe and hike with an ice axe. And you look really cool, by the way, when you have an ice axe on your pack, <laughs> really cool. But uh, when I'm hiking in any kind of snow, I always have one of these. And there was a day that we were hiking. Um, ben was, I was probably with Ben and these guys and we're traversing not straight up, but around the side. And sure enough, I'm traversing and my foot hits a slab of ice and I'm gone, I'm sliding and I'm in a free fall. And I don't think I would have free fallen to my death or anything like that. I'm not trying to be over dramatic, but I'm just saying I lost my footing and I was sliding down the mountain. And because they had trained me to do this, I get on my ice axe and I self-arrested myself. And then I clipped my way back up and I was a lot more careful the next steps I made. But this thing was really important to me. Why am I telling you this analogy? This is the word of God for your life, church, right here. This is your, the word of God is your self-arrest when life circumstances throws you into a tailspin. The word of God is your ice axe. It will stop the free fall. Um, this is what Jesus did to John the Baptist. Go back and study Isaiah 35, John and it will dispel your doubts. I, it's true, I am Messiah. You are not forgotten, persevere, persevere. By the way, my, um, my self-arrest passages in my life, in my personal life are Psalm 103, Romans chapter eight and 2 Corinthians five. Those are chapters in the Bible that when I'm in a season of doubt or I'm on the slippery slope of doubt or grief or hardship or whatever that I go to and walk by faith and not by sight to go, you know what, my feelings are saying one thing and my circumstances are screaming another thing. But I am going to read Romans chapter eight right now and I don't feel this at all. And I'm gonna self-arrest with Romans 8. Um, Stan and Barb Myers were in the first service and we were fellowshipping with them before Christmas and they told me the story in a really hard season of their life. Um, they were receiving ministry from a counselor. And when Stan told me the story, um, he said, she just wrote, opened the book, her Bible up to Romans chapter eight and just turned it like this. <laughs> Put it right in front of me and read this. Like the whole chapter, read Romans eight, reads it out loud. And the next question, do you believe that? Do you believe that? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do you believe that? Amen. Right? God works all things together for the good. Doesn't mean that all things are good because all things ain't good. But God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Like whoosh, church, whoosh, whoosh. 
Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Like your fellowship with God doesn't get broken. Can I just say that out loud? Your fellowship with God doesn't get broken because Jesus said nothing, nothing can ever snatch you out of my hand. And we, we hear that phrase like, oh, when you, when you da-da-da-da-da, fellowship with God is broken and you got to get back over to restore fellowship with God. And I'm like, that ain't in the Bible, you guys. That is not in the text. Here's what's in the text. Nothing can separate you from the love of God and nothing can snatch you out of my hand. I think, um, I think that, I'm off my notes right now. <laughs> I think that having emotional intelligence is really important. And when I first got married, I was an emotional toddler at best. And that was a really lonely place for my wife. So all of you young homies out there, if you don't have an emotional language, let me just give you some free counseling. I'm not gonna charge you for this. Go get some help around your ability to identify what you're thinking and feeling and to be able to communicate that to someone. And all the ladies in the house are like, amen, preach it. <laughs> Right? So I believe that that is important. But hear me. We are not called feelers. We are called believers. And we have to have the kind of faith that when our feelings are ebbing and flowing and all over the place and our circumstances are, 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 are hard and, and life is hard and I'm in a season of grief and I'm doubting and I'm feeling all these things, that we submit our circumstances and our feelings to the authority of God's word. And we turn the Bible over and we read it and go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my stake right here. And I don't know what your Ice Axe verses is. And if you wanna use mine, Psalm 103, Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 5, I'll tell you, have at it. They are really great chapters in the Bible. And they have really been helpful for me. But I would equip you to pick some chapters that are yours. That when you're on the slippery slope of doubt in your life, <laughs> Right? And I would equip you to have some friends who know how to speak that over you as well. Because it's, it's not good for us to be alone. Amen? All right, back on my notes. Back on my notes. So that's what we see in John the Baptist. Doubt what Jesus gives him. Bro, like go back and study Isaiah 35. It's true. I'm Messiah. From a meta-narrative perspective in the chapter, what we see is three different responses to, to Jesus being Messiah. We see John the Baptist and his confusion and doubt. And then in verses 16 to 24, uh, we see the majority's rejection. And Jesus has some pretty serious language for the majority of people that were around that weren't receiving him as Messiah. We'll read those verses. Uh, and then lastly, the minority's faith and the promise of rest. Uh, very familiar passage there at the end. So let's read these next passages. I have uh, 20 to 24, but let's start with verse 16. Uh, and again, the context is the majorities of people's rejection of Jesus. And Jesus says this in verse 16, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. In other words, we're doing this stuff and you're supposed to do 
what you're supposed to do in response to what we're doing. In other words, Jesus is looking at the generation going, you just, you complain. It's like, it's like we're at a wedding and you play like Usher, yeah, and it's like you didn't come out and dance. <laughs> like when, when Usher plays at a wedding reception, you get on the dance floor and you break it down. And can I just say like, I think we've had enough weddings with Usher, yeah, it might be time to move on. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. But I will say this to you. If I'm at your wedding or I have the privilege of officiating your wedding, if you're not married and you play Usher, yeah, I will get on the floor and dance. <laughs> Trust me. But he's like, look at this, like, it's so, it's so like, you look at that verse, it's like, uh, so conditional. Like we do this, we get this. He's like, you guys are missing it. You're missing it. And then he says in verse 18, for John, speaking of John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. So we know the life of John the Baptist. He separated himself from society. He was a he was a unique, weird dude, right? He only ate locusts and honey. Like he dressed with, yeah. Dude was dude was a little little out there, right? And they look at John the Baptist and they go, he's got a demon. Well then. Jesus says the next verse, then the son of God comes and he came eating and drinking. And they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Like you complained about John the Baptist separating himself and here I am interacting and I call Matthew out of his tax booth, Matthew chapter nine, he throws a party because he's so stinking grateful for what's happening in his life and you call me a drunkard. Like complain, 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 complain. And he says in the next verse, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. And then he begins to announce some reality about the unrepentant cities. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities of which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles were performed in you, had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for, for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment, on the final day of judgment, at the second coming, than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles were performed in, in you, had been performed in Sodom, it would actually have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Serious language from Jesus himself here. Um, centers his teaching here on the word repentance. Uh, in the series before we had our Matthew series, I did a series called Untangling Legalism. And one of the messages in that series was on the word repentance. It's on September the 12th of last year, if you want to go back and listen to that. The word simply means change your mind. That's all it means, change your mind. And from the very beginning of Matthew, the proclamation of Jesus has been repent, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is here and now, like Messiah has 
come. That has been the message of Jesus over and over and over again. And what Jesus is stating here is that while Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, they were literally eyewitnesses to Jesus's authority and power over sin, disease, and death. They simply did not receive him as Messiah. They rejected him. And it's interesting that he brings in all these other cities that we all know, right? Especially Sodom. You think about Sodom, like Genesis 19, write that down. You can go back and read that later. Sodom has kind of become like this metaphor for like iniquity and God smited it. It's like wiped it off the face of the earth, right? Genesis chapter 19. And then the sins of Tyre and Sidon, there was a prophecy of their destruction. It's recorded in Isaiah 23. And all of those prophecies were actually fulfilled to last detail. And Jesus is basically saying here, like, at the, at the second coming of Christ, at the great white throne of judgment, by the way, we talked a lot about this last week, uh, it's going to be worse for Capernaum, Bethsaida, and um, Chorazin than for these infamous old covenant cities that were known for how evil they were. In spite of the seriousness of their sin before God, Jesus says that on the day of judgment, their punishment would be less severe than for Capernaum, who had every opportunity to receive Christ as Messiah, because he was there. He was right there. And he performed the miracles in front of their own eyes. And still, they rejected him. And that's a response. So we have John the Baptist doubt. We have the rejection of the three cities and then the minorities rest. And these are really infamous verses that we'll close with today, verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. I mean, he just like, he's offering the woes and then he begins to praise the Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you have revealed them to little children. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, amen. Luke 10 gives us a little bit more context to what we just read. The context of Jesus is he's praising the Father and the context of it is the 12 disciples come back from their very first missionary journeys and they're telling Jesus, you're right. We, we did have authority. In the name of Jesus, we had the authority and we saw miraculous things happen. And Jesus is praising the Father for it, for the wisdom of his plan, which is so countercultural to worldly wisdom because the wisdom of God and the power of God moves through simple people empowered by the Son, even children. There's no power without the Son. 
There's no formula that gives you authority and power other than the reality of the Son of God in you, through you, to other people. And that's what was happening. And he was praising God because of it. And then his invitation was for more to come. More, there's more room. There's more seats at the table. There's more grace for you. And he offers this amazing, like, grace upon grace to all invitation. It goes out to all who are weary and burdened. Not just, not just for, what's today, the 20, 23rd. It doesn't just go out to those of you in this room have, that have had a pretty good quiet time for the first 23 days in 2022. But if you have had good quiet times for the first 23 days of 2022, awesome. But the invitation just doesn't go out. It goes to everyone. It goes out to the person in this room that hasn't cracked a Bible in 2022 yet. But, but you're here and you're wondering, is Jesus still real? Or should I, look, should I look somewhere else for hope and peace in my life? The invitation is for all people to come to the religious who are burdened by all their religion, they're exhausted, they're tired, they're discouraged, to the people who are under the oppression of religion, guilted, shamed, and afraid. It's for everyone. And if you have, if you're carrying something heavy, come, come to me. Heavy yokes go on oxen. Um, this is not two oxen from first century Judaism. I just simply found this on Google on Friday afternoon. <laughs> it's just a picture of two oxen with that heavy yoke on their neck. And they are pulled together. And their only job here is work, work, work. And that's what Jesus says. We got work to do, but this ain't the picture. The work that we do comes out of an empowerment of my unconditional love, of my radical forgiveness and the grace upon grace that I have for you. Most people that I have um, interacted with over the years in ministry, uh, to some degree or another, uh, most people I would say consciously or unconsciously carry some burden of guilt and shame and fear to some degree, different seasons. And only God can remove this burden. That burden doesn't get removed by work, work, work. That burden gets removed by grace, grace, grace. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to. Isaiah 30, a promise from the old covenant, God longs to be gracious to you and he rises to show you compassion. Jesus in Matthew 11, come to me, come to me and I will give you rest. Question for you, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a disciple of Christ, do you know rest, like real rest? Or do you just know work, work, work? Check the box, check the box, check the box. That's not the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 11. The invitation of Jesus in Matthew 11 is, if you don't know rest, like real rest, come to me. I'm the only place where you can get it. And I got so much of it, you don't even understand. Come to me and I'll give it to you. If you're weary today, if you're burdened today, if you're worried about so many things, if you're shackled by guilt, shame, fear, how much do you truly want real rest? 
Do you want it enough to repent, to change your mind, to become like a little child and come to Christ in a fresh way? And here's the, here's the promise of Jesus. When you pull together with me, when you come together with me, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. The gracious yoke of forgiveness, unconditional love, so that you might receive rest, rest, rest for your souls. Believers work from rest. We don't work for rest. We work from rest. Um, I'm doing something a little different to close today. Would you stand with me? I want us to read together these verses. I just want us to, we sing songs and you proclaim those songs. And there's something about a community of faith standing together and reading scripture aloud that we proclaim it over ourselves. So as we read this, I want you to proclaim this over your own life and your own family. I also want you to proclaim it over this family. This is the word of God. Here's what I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm going, read this. Do you believe it? Matthew 11, 28 to 30. And then we're gonna sing a couple songs. And one of the, the last song we're singing is, uh, pastoral special request. Great is thy faithfulness, the old school way. Um, and so let us enter in to a responsive worship time by reading these words of Jesus and receiving it for ourselves. Would you read this with me? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.